Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. I'm your host of the Gut Check Project, Eric Rieger, joined by this guy, Dr. Kenneth Brown. Ken, what's going on? Well, what's going on today is we have a great guest. This is going to be really exciting because he has lots of stuff that I want him to teach me. We have Dr. Yusuf J.P. Salibi. He has a history of being in emergency medicine for over 20 years, and then he shifted his focus to holistic and functional medicine, and he runs the Carolina Holistic Medicine Clinic and also wrote a book called The Wonder Herbs, A Guide to Three Adaptogens. And as I just learned, he's got a whole lot more going on, some really cool stuff that uh, I didn't even know about, so I'm excited to get into all of it. Dr. Salibi, JP, what's going on? Welcome hey, to the Gut Check Project. Uh, thanks for having me. Loving it. So, um, yeah, you mentioned my book. That's an old book, 2006, Wonder Herbs, A Guide to Three Adaptogens. I, I talked about three of about 25 adaptogenic herbs. And then I did a chapter in Stop the Thyroid Madness and then a couple of chapters in some LDN books. There's a third edition LDN, low-dose naltrexone. Oh, yeah, okay. okay. So there's a big conference coming up in, in June in uh-huh. Pennsylvania. It's an international LDN conference. Really? So, I'll be one of the speakers there, but it's going to be great. We'll try to get as many doctors who don't know anything about LDN to come and learn. Okay. Well, so we're here at the FLCCC conference. That's what uh, brought us all here. So what is your involvement with FLCCC? You're a a speaker and... uh... Yeah. So I've been involved with them for quite a bit. Um, Started to learn a little bit about early treatment options, like the use of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, following Peter McCulley and Dr. Zelenko, and then following the testimony that uh, Pierre Corey gave at the Senate hearings for promoting ivermectin to save lives. And of course, that was you know ignored, and he, he went twice before the Senate. So I knew there was something we could be doing for our patients. We treat a lot of chronic illness, Lyme disease, leaky gut, uh, you name it, most of the stuff functional medicine docs see. And so we weren't used to having people come in with acute conditions that have to be seen within a few hours. I mean, that's not, you know, people come in and make an inquiry and they're, they're scheduled an appointment two, three weeks out. So um, I was working with two other uh, nurse practitioners and I said, hey, there's a big need out there. There's nobody in our area. And we were in the Myrtle Beach and Charleston, South Carolina area. There was nobody giving early treatment. And I said, how would you guys feel about changing the way we do things a little bit? We put it to a vote and they're like, oh, let's do it. We need to do it. So then we, we, hired, we doubled our staff. We actually hired another couple of nurse practitioners. Mm-hmm. We have six now. What was the time frame when you decided to do uh, that? Oh, gosh, that was right as the early treatment options were, were a thing. I mean, this was um, right when they were rolling out the vaccines, too. Oh. And I knew the vaccines. I mean, there's no way it could be you know, safe and effective with that short a period of time to roll out. So I knew something was fishy. So I didn't vaccinate, nor did my spouse um, and about tw- only 20% of our patient base has been vaccinated. I mean, they all got the memo, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, uh, but we were writing ivermectin, uh, and we were doing, following the FLCC plans. And then, um, I got more involved with the organization. They came and asked me to speak in Orlando last year in October. Um, and I presented on, um, kind of functional medicine aspects of things. And then they asked me to come back this year and kind of focus on a couple of case reports on patients injected, one injected and one infected that also happen to have Lyme underneath. That's mm. why they didn't get better on a basic protocol. Okay. So that's where I'll be kind of focused on, but I'm also lending a hand. I, I was up on stage this evening talking about methylene blue and photo biophotomodulation um, following Paul Merrick's and Mobin's talk. 
Yeah, I don't want to gloss over either one of those. So the <laughs> the uh, the use of uh, methylene blue, right. uh, I hadn't thought of it being used in this aspect. In anesthesia, that's not what we would typically use it for. So kind of explain... A little bit about that. Yeah. So, well, methylene blue is an interesting drug or compound. You know, it started its life as an industrial dye. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you and I are both wearing blue, and that's where it started in the late 1800s. And then they used it to stain slides with organisms on it. They noticed that all the parasites were dying mm-hmm. on the slide. And they're like, hmm, well, we've recently discovered with the germ theory, you know, there's this bug now that causes malaria. It's not melodious air. It's not, although that name stuck for malaria. But now we know there's an organism involved, and I think we should try this agent on it. So it became the first pharmaceutical that was an anti-malarial drug. Okay. That's how it started its career, shifting from industrial dye to drug. Disulfram is another example, you know, in the vulcanization process, and now we use it in Lyme disease um, and anabuse, you know. Uh, but anyway, with methylene blue, it, you know, newer drugs came to market, and methylene blue took a backseat as far as a pharmaceutical. In the malaria world. In the malarial world. Well, now they use it for hemoglobinemia. They mm-hmm. use it for cyanide poisoning. It's, in this, it's stocked in the Pyxis in your ERs. Um, but, you know, for malaria, it wasn't. But now it's coming back because these other drugs, there's resistance. And there's no resistance with methylene blue. But we also have discovered that methylene blue works great with HIV, with Lyme disease, with COVID. It, it enhances the mitochondria, it's like food for the mitochondria. Doesn't it promote electron transport yes. or something like yep. that? Yeah. Electron transport, exactly. And Mo Bean, uh, Dr. Bean did a great presentation on it. And you can find his stuff on the internet, you know, on, uh, on his channel. Um, and it's um, also you when, you when you consume it, and um, there are some caveats. I mean, I don't recommend anyone just go out and buy some, although you can over the counter. Uh, as long as you get the pharmaceutical grade, mm-hmm. you know, there's four different grades. You don't want the industrial grade because it has some uh, heavy metals that are a problem. But if you get the pharmaceutical grade, USP uh, 1% solution, you can start taking it. And then once you consume it, about 20 minutes later, you want to get out in the sun to photobiomodulate because that basically turns that thing on, you know. So the best time to do that in, in natural light, free light, is dawn and dusk. You want to avoid the you know, sun in the high noon sun, it's too hot. But, uh, or you could get one of those expensive uh, red lamps, mm-hmm. you know, those, those kind of near infrared lamps. Um, but that has uh, been very helpful. I've got several patients. Uh, we're going to data mine our data because we have a good number of patients on methylene blue, mostly for COVID-related illness, some Lyme. But um, I have a nurse practitioner who's um, heavy into prescribing that and he's done a lecture great lecture uh peter rambo and he's going to data mine our data and we're going to see how that pans out with efficacy um but i i, I take it myself how do you yeah. i'm sorry how do, how do you dose it for covid well you have to start low and now some people are aggressive and they're like yeah take 10 you get a one percent solution so you take uh, 10 drops bid that's that's heavy-handed uh, I like to start out low, so start out with five drops. So you're, you know, each drop of the one percent solutions is 0.5 milligrams. So five drops is two and a half milligrams. That's where I like to start it, and then you kind of monitor yourself and make sure you can have a bad Herx, uh, Herxheimer reaction. If I explain that to the audience, is a die-off reaction. The very first time I took methylene blue, I did five drops in some ice water, and I herked 
Herxed, and I felt like crap the rest of the day. But sure. you didn't have SIBO or anything, the typical things that we would no, think that would cause uh, that? No, not that I know of. Now, I've treated so many Lyme patients. I'm so uh, in close proximity. I may True. have it. Now, True. I've never tested myself, and I don't have a really high Horowitz score, so I don't know. But I, I Herxed with something. Something happened. So I, I kind of backed off a little bit and then started back three drops. So three drops and then five drops, and now I'm at 10. And then what I try to do is after consuming that, after 20 minutes, I try to get out in the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, because it, it just um, makes it more efficacious. What are some of the symptoms that someone would look at before uh, applying methylene blue? Is it like neuralgias and different things like that? Yeah, peripheral neuropathy, neuralgias, depression, anxiety disorder okay. that's used in HIV and a lot of infectious diseases. And for people who have um, dysfunctional mitochondria or mitochondrial dysfunction, you know, it's a big thing. A lot of mitochondrial dis- disorders. And, and I think the world we live in now, uh, more and more of that is coming to the surface. So they can use that as a way to enhance their mitochondria. Uh, just like you would, t- you know, NM, um, NMD, uh, MND+, NMN, uh, those kind of things people take to help um, enhance their mitochondrial function. The methylene blue, he was the one that brought this up to me, and I feel like I try to stay up on functional stuff, but this one caught me out of completely, I didn't, I've never heard about it, I never saw it for anything, I used it once when I was in residency for methemoglobinemia, Right. and you know, I was scared because I had to do it IV and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden, we started talking about it, I'm like, this kind of makes sense, why don't more people know about this? Well, I think it's the resurgence is because I think of um, organizations like A4M and IFM, you know, the, the integrative folks, the anti-aging folks, they're using it. Uh, just like rapamycin, rapamune, you probably have heard of that before. You know, it started its life, uh, rapamune, uh, from the Easter Island. Okay, that's where it was discovered. Just like ivermectin was discovered on a golf course in near Tokyo. Yeah, in Japan. Right? So yeah. these Canadian researchers went out to Easter Island because none of the natives, the indigenous people there, walked around barefoot mm-hmm. and not a single documented case of tetanus ever. You know, and they're step, stepping on stuff mm-hmm. and cutting their feet. Why is that? There must have been something in the soil that prevented them from getting tetanus. And so they, they cultivated this thing, and it, was, it turned out to be uh, rapamune. Uh, they started using it as an antifungal, but then it had immunosuppressant properties, so it fell out of favor for that. But then with the advent of uh, renal, um, renal transplant to avoid rejection, they brought it. That's why they call it um, rapamune. It, it, it uses an anti-rejection drug. But in low-dose, what we call low-dose rapamycin, we're talking maybe four to six milligrams once weekly, it's used as an anti-aging agent. And you could say the same thing for methylene blue. We call it low-dose methylene blue. Mm-hmm. We don't want to use high doses of it. So a couple of caveats is you don't want to use it in pregnant women or nursing women. You don't want to use it with somebody who's on high doses of SSRIs. Um, and then you want, if you get a high dose, like above 10 drops or 10 milligrams a day, you want to check uh, G6PD def- so that you're not deficient in that because that could cause some cell lysis, so. So you were a pretty uh, early adopter of the FLCCC protocols. Right. So what's been your experience navigating through there? Obviously, what I think is great is after meeting so many people here that 
people use what they're most comfortable with in their practice to get the results that they're after. So Mm -hmm. kind of talk about what your approach was doing that. Yeah. So once we flipped our switch and started taking on patients acutely, like, like booking them that day and seeing them within 12 hours, uh, I mean, our phone line exploded, our inboxes on our emails exploded. So we, we were like freaking out, like, oh, did we bite off more than we could chew? But we staffed up for it and got over it. But what we were seeing is none of our patients were succumbing. They weren't going to the hospital. You know, the only patient I had on ivermectin that went to the hospital, he got a concomitant prescription for a cough medicine. And he tipped the bottle of hydrocodone back, and he was uptunded from that. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. For that prescription... There was a there was a complaint filed with the state board, South Carolina. So they came after me to investigate why I was writing ivermectin. And and uh, funny story during the process of that, they were accusing ivermectin of making this guy uptunded. I said, find me just one case out of the millions or billions of prescriptions. I said, you'll not find it. What made him uptunded was the cough medicine, you know. But anyway, that's what triggered the investigation, and they drug it out for a year. And uh, finally, it was dismissed because they had no grounds. Sure. Uh, and they tried to change it from ivermectin prescribing to informed consent. That was what? the complaint. Yeah. Well, our attorney general, uh, about a month after the complaint went in, our attorney general in South Carolina said, doctors are okay to write off-labor drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. We're not going to go after them. So it should have dropped right there. But they said, nah, we want to go after Salibi. He's a big mouth, you know. Um, he's doing this early treatment. He's not part of the narrative. So they switch things. Four days after the AG okayed ivermectin, I get a new letter from the board, and they switch the complaint from ivermectin prescription to informed consent. And we had so much informed consent on that chart. It was ridiculous. But they were trying to drag it out. Sure. You know, trying to punish me. How were you feeling at the time? How was I feeling? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I was angry. I said, I'm not going to shut up. I'm not that dog where you swat them on a snout with a newspaper and they go in the corner and be quiet. That's not me. They messed with the wrong guy. I became more more active, more loud about it. And then I started going on the whole anti-vaccine thing. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, I I was on the fence about the vaccine. I didn't vaccinate, but I left it up to my patients. They would ask me, doc, should I get the vaccine? Which one should I get? I'm like, well, I can't tell you if Moderna is better than Pfizer, but I said, do your homework. I said, I don't trust what the FDA and WHO um, is, and the CDC is saying, uh, I said, but do your homework. So I was on the fence. I'll let, it'll be a patient decision. But once I started seeing data from Peter McCulley on the cardiomyopathies and some of the other data coming in, I'm like, okay, that's it. I can't remain silent. I've got to say no. So I tell people, they ask me, I said, don't get it, period. And, you know, we, we see a lot of our new patients coming into the practice are vax injured or anything COVID related. Mm-hmm. They get a COVID infection or the injection and it activates their chronic Lyme or their heavy metals or their mycotoxin illness or their leaky gut. When you talked about uh, changing gears earlier, uh, uh, you, you were mentioning that uh, you and your team got together and y'all chose an approach, which I found really encouraging that you had support of the people that you worked with immediately. But you're also not where you started. I think you started off as an ER physician, correct? Right. Do you happen to keep in contact with any of those colleagues and did they have an opinion on the direction that you were going now? Yeah. So I'm kind of an outlier. So I graduated medical school in 91, did my postgraduate training in North Carolina, mm-hmm. ECU. And my goal was to do internal medicine and then a fellowship in allergy immunology. Cause I did some research 
uh, while in medical school. And I thought that's what I wanted to do, be a researcher. Um, but it was after I started um, t- touching patients and, and being with the patients and communicating and saying, well, this is too good. I don't want to be in a cave somewhere with no windows pulling my hair out for NIH grants. I didn't want to do that. So I realized that, well, maybe research wasn't really for me. So I, sh- I shifted uh, gears from internal medicine to emergency medicine because then I could do a little bit of everything. And, and that's what I did for the, that was my first career. And it was great. I loved, I worked a lot of small community hospitals. I traveled up uh, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. I enjoyed it. But then when things started to sour, you know, when things started to change about five years before I retired, I said, you know what? If I don't enjoy what I'm doing, I got to move on. But in the late 90s, a couple of years after residency, um, I knew there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, ER medicine, dislocated shoulder, laceration, gunshot wound, we're great at that here. Where we suck is chronic illness, diabetes, CHF, you know, that kind of thing. So you see Joe come in every Saturday, you know, to get some fluid pulled off and maybe he gets admitted. I'm like, we're doing something wrong. It's like a, you know, revolving door. That's just not right. Something's wrong. So I went on a long journey and because I did emergency medicine, I would work three or four shifts in a row and then I'd have a long weekend off and I'd go to Vegas or California for a conference. And that's how I got introduced to ACAM, A4M, IFM, um, AAMG. Um, and that's where I educated myself. I put together a curriculum and that's what I've used to build a library where I can teach other practitioners mostly advanced providers, nurse practitioners and PA. That's my niche. And I try to educate them. I've educated all my providers. I have six NPs and PAs that work for me. And they do most of my heavy lifting now. I'm kind of the brain trust and I see the just a few patients a week that are super uber complicated. And, uh, but they're fantastic. And, and they're just clones of me. I mean, I basically educated them and try to erase a lot of the bad education they got when they were in training. So can I just clarify that? So you actually set up a true curriculum for them. So when you have a yep. new hire, you're yep. like, this is what you're going to do, and they're going to be essentially yeah. be certified by you. Right. That's so cool. my practice is Carolina Holistic Medicine, but the corporate structure is Priority Health, LLC. And Priority Health is the educational arm, or the Priority Health Academy was something I set up about seven years ago as a means to have a long weekend in the summer, in July, where I pull all my practitioners together and we do a crash course of lectures. It would be me lecturing and a few other docs and PharmDs that would come down and lecture. So I had, I had at the time four nurse practitioners, but eight people showed up. I'm like, oh, who were the other four? Well, they had heard about it and they wanted to come sit in. Is that okay? I'm like, yeah, who cares? You know, I got the space. Every year it doubled. Uh-huh. You know, so then I was like, okay, I need to make this more formal. So then we started advertising it, you know, and, and made it a structure where it was archived. And so the last uh, uh, three years, there have been archived lectures from some real good luminaries in, in functional medicine. You know, Richard Horowitz for Lyme disease, Moorcroft for Lyme. Um, I got Dr. Hader uh, interviewed this year. Paul Merrick talks about photobiomodulation, like a twice as long lecture as what he just gave this evening. Um, a lot of Dr. Bean talked about, um, you know, autophagia. And so, um, we, we do that. Um, and it's in its sixth year, this, this July launching all these lectures on, uh, July the 15th. Wow. And so I've done that. And then we extend that into a practice building because we're in the process of building a parallel healthcare system. 
Some folks talk about repairing the one that exists. It's too, it's too broken, too corrupt, too broken. It's nearing implosion, and we have to build a whole new system. I mean, that talks about you know clinics, hospitals, educational centers, pharmacies, eventually universities to treat you know real medical schools to re, you know to treat to teach real medicine, um, and that that's going to take some time. But I'm part of that movement, and I have a system or platform to help from soup to nuts get your practice you know from back end office hr you know what does e-verify have you never ever hired a person before well if you're coming out of an academic institution you said anesthesia Mm -hmm. yeah so you probably never had to hire anybody if you're working for a big hospital system so you don't know what e-verify is well we tell teach people that we talk about the billing system and the different platforms to use for ehr and uh for marketing and uh, how to set up a website, how to hire and train people, all the way up through the educational parts. So we have master classes uh, once a month. We have end-of-week Q&A sessions every Thursday. Um, and then we have our big symposium and all the archive lectures too. So this, this brings up a two-part question. And the, and the, the setup is this. Um, I think it's, first of all, what were your statistics, do you think, um, around how successful you were by how many patients that you treat, how many had COVID, used your protocol, and then didn't have to go to the hospital or how they fared? So that, we, that's part one. we had hundreds of patients between me and, and all the nurse practitioners and PAs that saw people. And we did this strictly telemed. If they were sick, feverish, we did telemed. Mm-hmm. And we had already had our platforms in place. I mean, we were doing pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown, we were doing telemedicine and we were almost at 50% then. Okay. Um, but when the, the lockdown happened and the folks started calling in really sick, I mean, everything was in place. We didn't have to invent anything. So we were, you know, doing those 15, 20 minute sessions. Now, if they were super, super sick, we would have them either come in or, or go to the hospital. Well, that was very, very infrequent. Sure. So we had that one fella show up to, um, a local hospital because he was uptunded with the coding Uh, And we had uh, the only two deaths we had were two males in their 50s that happened not only to be patients, but personal friends of mine. Matter of fact, they were friends before they became patients. They came late to the game. They came late. Their wives dragged them in because they were like tough, macho guys like, I can get over this. I don't need any ivermectin or whatever that other stuff is. Well, they kind of came in late. One was like nine days into it. He had one dose of ivermectin and he had to go into the hospital. And that's where he got killed. Yeah. It wasn't the COVID that killed him. This guy was a robust, healthy, worked out, you know, big, bulky guy, uh, pretty fit with no past medical history. But it was what they did to him in the hospital, remdesivir, early ventilation, bilateral chest tubes. When I heard that out, you know, his wife's a nurse and she was texting me every day, giving me an update because we were friends. I mean, I know this, I know this fellow for almost 30 years. And I knew when she said, well, he's prone and vented and he's got bilateral chest tubes. I said, oh, geez, that's not good. And he died within a week. And then the other fellow was uh, a week later. They, they came in almost at the same time. It was really weird. Both friends of mine, both in their 50s. Um, and one guy never got a dose of ivermectin, period. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when they went in hospital, all that was stopped. Over, yeah. The zinc, quercetin, vitamin C, everything was stopped. And they put them on remdesivir and whatever else they did uh, that's obviously ineffective and probably fatal. 
you know, that treatment, that in-hospital treatment, if they were not following the FLCCC I-MAST or I-MATH protocols, then those folks were doomed. Sure. Yeah. Well, first, I'm sorry that you lost your friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but second, it sounds like the statistics for everyone else, very, very good. And having trained all of those people that started falling in to your methodology and using IFM and A4M, mm-hmm. uh, did, did that success story when compared to the immediate surrounding area kind of give you all some kind of internal validation like we... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So when we had like? When we had other, uh, other practices nearby uh, and they were boasting, you know, high vaccination ratios of their patients, whereas we weren't vaccinating our patients and we were discouraging it and we were using ivermectin and the FLCCC protocol, very, the nutraceutical bundles very successfully. Nobody was getting really sick. Nobody was going in the hospital. Nobody was dying with the exception of those two guys. And I, I can't even say that we even had a, sh- a chance with them because they, you know, they were late coming and they didn't have a chance to do a full course of ivermectin. So, um, you know, had that not been the case, we would have had zero fatalities. You know, I don't know if, you know, Zelenko, he had thousands of patients, no deaths. And he was in the hotbed of uh, Manhattan, you know, New York. Uh, when he was practicing, you know, he, he passed away. I don't, do you know Zelenko? I don't know. He came up with an early protocol with hydroxychloroquine. And I want to believe that uh, it was the protocol that uh, Donald Trump took Mm. when he was, when he had COVID. He passed in what, 21? Yeah, he had sarcoma. And so he he had cancer before the pandemic. um, But he was very vocal, uh, very smart guy, had it figured out and took care of a lot of COVID patients. Nobody died on his watch. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, so. Um, How is yeah. all that being ignored? That is insane. Well, it's the, the legacy media is what covers it up. I mean, how do people know about this? Unless you're one of his patent at 900,000, whatever, of his patients, they would know and maybe their immediate friends and family would know. But the rest of the country doesn't. The rest of the world doesn't. And they did a great job at suppressing this information from getting out. Um, you know, they deplatform people. Like Peter McCauley, you know, Pierre and Paul were deplatformed and made to look like nuts. You know, even if you go to their Wikipedia page, there'll be some derogatory mention of something. Um, but it's the, the media, the grasp that pharma has on the media that has not allowed this information to get out and become common knowledge. It's not common knowledge. So very, very few people that know this stuff uh, and know how life-saving these protocols are the vast majority of people, even some of my close family, like my, uh, my sister and brother-in-law and my nieces and some of our good friends that are nurses in California, we're clueless. We, were, we, were at, uh, we convened recently uh, on a vacation together and we just in, you know, in the conversation around the dinner table said something about Vax injury and they looked at us and these are both nurses in California. They both looked at us and what, what the hell are you talking about? What do you mean Vax injury? uh because they got, they were fully vaxxed and boosted. Sure. And fortunately, they didn't have any issues, thank God. But they were just clueless. I mean, they looked at us like we were, you know, speaking in tongues. You know, what do you mean vax injured? So there's that you have to contend with. You know, that just the vast majority of people out there don't know what's going on. What do you think the future is now? So, given that there happens to have been this suppression, and now we're kind of into this emergence area. What is it that you see that kind of gives people hope for 
the next step, whether they, whether they were vac- had vaccines or whether they had COVID or right. neither apply. Yeah. So I, th- I think the folks that know this, they have awakened to see what the problem is. And the problem is the healthcare system isn't working very well. Pharma is too corrupt and too involved in it. Government agencies have sold out. The medical journals have sold out. Um, you know, the, the whole thing needs a whole reworking. It needs to, it's like the Phoenix. It has to rise from the ashes. I mean, we're almost at the ashes point. I think that we're teetering on a major implosion. And when it happens, it's going to be like a domino effect. It's going to really collapse really fast. And it's going to be devastating for mainstream doctors and their patients. Both are going to be left, you know, on the sidelines. Like, what, what do we do now? So we have to prepare and build a parallel healthcare system that is, you know, a patient advocates and compassionate, respectful, having integrity, and not be sort of uh, directed to do things by pharma and big hospital systems. Well, the current environment that we have is dependent on chronic disease. Yeah. Everything mm-hmm. from the hospital system to the insurance to pharma, and it's just, it is absolutely necessary to have sick sure. people around and right. everything about it. And then all of a sudden you get into big agra, big food. Exactly. So big agra was the topic of Paul's last lecture on the, how bad the food industry is hurting people with the garbage they're putting out in the upside down food pyramid. And which then, you know, he said, well, they're in cahoots with pharma because now the pharmaceuticals guys step in. Well, we got a fix for your insulin resistance or your type two diabetes or hypertension or dyslipidemia. And it's the reason that people are in such bad shape is because of big food business. You know, it's just like this working hand in hand with each other to, for profit. We did a podcast, Eric and I, uh-huh. on, um, there was a, a journal that came out where I actually did this sort of almost an expose. It was like, you know, investigative journalism mm-hmm. on the American Dietetics Association, the ADA, whatever it was called before. And it was because of the Freedom of Information Act, they were able to get all these emails. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely ridiculous how the people there in charge literally are accepting grants. And if they were limited to do that, then they would form a fund. And it was coming from Big Agra, Big Pharma, oh, yeah. almost all of it. And then you realize that's just a little microcosm of the bigger picture of probably what's happening in every organization from the CDC to the FDA. Oh, and yeah. with this one, it was just very transparent. You're like, the people telling us what to eat are being told by Big Agra, Big Food, and Big mm-hmm. Pharma. Yeah, I think the whole food pyramid thing stemmed from a st- one single study. Uh, I forget the author's name, back in, the, I think, the 50s. And it was supported by a senator who was from the mid Midwest, and that was you know wheat. So he had to figure out what to do with his constituency who were growing wheat and corn. <laughs> and so that's what, you know, was, that was the bottom of the pyramid, yeah. you know, built on sandy ground. Well, we know if you build a castle on sand, what happens? So now it's ca- collapsing because since then we've seen a rise in, um, you know, chronic disease. Well, the, set, the subsidiaries handed out to other things, other food additives that simply make bad food, less expensive. So it happens to be the option or the same thing with high pressed seed oils. Oftentimes with other friends who are like-minded, sometimes the question comes up, man, why is good healthy food so expensive? But really sometimes the question should be is why is crappy food so cheap? Cheap, Right. Yeah. 
because any of you slap organic on something and the price doubles, yeah, right? Or you can go to a fast food restaurant and they have a healthy option, which is three times as expensive. So you have, you know, some underserved people, maybe not well-educated, and they're like, well, I'm going to get the double burger with fries for, you know, a fraction of the price of a salad. Mm-hmm. And that's what they go for. And so it, it keeps them in this perpetual state of unhealthiness, you know. Super interested in this parallel health system. And I'm in my head thinking of everything when you said soup to nuts on this deal. Mm-hmm. How do you see this actually happening, even from the very beginning stages? Well, it goes back 10 years. I, I, I foresaw this, but I didn't see it happening this rapidly. I thought it's going to be a slow transition where you're going to have this shift slowly to a new paradigm from traditional mainstream medicine to something, you know, more holistic. But it's going to take years, maybe 20, 30, 40 years. Then when the pandemic hit and they had that horrible pandemic response and then these these safe and effective vaccines rolled out, turned out that now people are finding out that's not true. They've, they were not protecting people. You know, people are on their third booster and they're like, well, I still got two bouts of COVID after I've been fully vaccinated. Or they're suffering some illnesses, but they're being told by their family doctors that, oh, it's not the vaccine, it's something else. Or you're just crazy, you know, where they're suffering tremendously. So they finally find their way into an integrative practice and are told, oh, yeah, it was that darn vaccine that's made you, you know, act like you're acting with all these symptoms. Um, I, I think, you know, I think things are moving faster now. So instead of 20, 30 years, it may be five to 10 Maybe sooner than that. It depends on, on what the populace will tolerate. You know, are they going to keep eating that same crap sandwich, you know? Uh, or are they going to ask for something better? And, and once the word gets out and spreads, and with the way, you know, social media is now, it probably could spread much ra- more rapid. Um, I think that the change will happen faster. Well, uh, JP, in addition to people going to the FLCCC website, how can people connect with you to learn a little bit more about your practice and approach? Yeah, so for the clinical practice, uh, we have a website, uh, carolinaholisticmedicine.com. Mm-hmm. If there are practitioners out there that are interested in hopping out of the matrix and into you know, owner-operated practice, free, free practice, you, know, you, can, you don't have a, anyone to answer to, and there are workarounds for you know, state licensing. I can't go over them here, but there are things that, um, you know, if the board, if the uh, state medical board takes your license away, there's ways to practice still and have security um, and some lay- layers of protection. Um, so that's uh, priority-health.us. Okay. So priority-health.us. Uh, that gives them an idea of what we do as far as the educational arm and the practice building arm. Well, everything that you've just mentioned will be featured in our show notes. JP, thank you so much for joining us on the Gut Check Project. If you're watching right now on YouTube or Rumble, be sure and stick with us. And if you're on Rumble, click join and uh, continue with us over GCP Raw. JP, thanks for joining us on this episode. We're going to stick together for a couple of little bit more in-depth questions on uh, Gut Check Project Raw. We'll see you there. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw Circle and use code HERO for a free month, plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends, and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check Project.